you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, thank you for your promise to be with us. I, I praise you that you sent your Son not only to save us, but to be with us, to guide us into this life. And I praise you also for the Holy Spirit whom you have given us so that we may continue to walk with you. Teach us, Lord, how we may do that. Strengthen us as we walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We do have children's church today, so if there are kids somewhere between the ages of four-ish and seven-ish, if they would like to go with my mom, they'll be heading out the doors that way shortly. So here we are at the end of our discipleship sermon series. Over the last three months, we've been looking at what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to help others follow him. As Jesus walked on the earth during the years of his public ministry, he called people to himself, and he said, remember, 23 times in the Gospels, follow me. And then at the end of his life, he gave that great commission to his disciples. Not the end of his life, I should say, after he rose from the dead. He gave that commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Make disciples. Later on in there, he said, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You have to wonder what the disciples would have thought there, right? Here's Jesus. They, they'd just been walking around with him for three years, and then Jesus says, oh, by the way, what you've seen me do, I now want you to do, not just here in Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And I'm guessing the disciples had questions, and I'm sure one of the, the biggest questions in their mind was, how do we do this? How do we follow Jesus? How do we continue to be disciples ourselves now that he lives in heaven? And how do we teach others to follow him? now that he's not physically here with us anymore. And if you think about it, it's the same question that we have. How do we follow a person that we don't see? And how is it that we teach others to follow him as well? If the word picture we see in the Gospels is of Jesus calling people to himself and then physically walking around with him to learn from him, what does that look like now? That's the question, and, and I believe that it's one of the key questions that a church needs to ask. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? What does it mean for us to help others follow him? I think that too many churches don't have a plan. I think that too many churches kind of just assume that it will happen along the way. Well, I guess, come on Sunday morning and, and do all the stuff we do, and, and in that process you'll be a disciple. And you know, that's, there's some truth to that. That in some ways, discipleship does just happen along the way. I'm sure that as the disciples followed Jesus, that there were things that they just picked up on along the way. But there was also that intentional teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples. And in his great commission, he said, now pass these things on to other people. The things you've heard me say, teach them to others. So how do we do that? Well, that's the, the question we've been trying to answer for the last three months. And now here we are, at the summary sermon to this series. And I just want to take one more crack, kind of taking a, a broad view of it, and answer that question. What does it mean for us to be disciples and to make disciples? One of the answers that can really help us out is to look at what those disciples did. So Jesus gave them the Great Commission. What did they do? Well, the book of Acts tells us exactly what they did. And we're going to look at a passage today in Acts 2, a passage that has been a formative passage for the church over the last two millennia that teaches us how we can continue to walk with Jesus and help others know him. And then, just in general, you think about the disciples. 
Think about their passion and their commitment. These were people who had varying levels of passion and commitment as they followed Jesus. Yeah, they had enough faith to say we're going to follow, but we know that they didn't get it right all the time along the way. But then something happened. Jesus died and rose again. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden those same people were the ones that God used to spread the church all over the world. And you think about how committed they were, and it's fair to say, I think, that they were more committed to Jesus Christ after he ascended into heaven than they were before. That's a model for us. That sort of commitment should be lived out in our lives. That sort of commitment to know Jesus and to make him known, like it says in our mission statement here at Cornerstone Church. So what should it look like to walk with Jesus to be disciples? What should it look like to help others walk with him, to make disciples? One of the things that I want you to pick up on today and through this sermon series and over the next coming years is that discipleship doesn't just happen along the way. We need to take an active role in being disciples and in making disciples. The way I like to think of it, I I think I started off with this analogy. We're not swimming lessons here. Even though we meet at a YMCA, and that may be confusing for some of you, we are not swimming lessons here. Now let me use that illustration. We took our son, Josiah, our five-year-old, to swimming lessons here at the Y just this summer. We we dropped him off here the first day I took him, and I I dropped him off at the pool, and he knew his teacher already, so that was great. And then they said, you parents have to go to the observatory room and watch. So I went back to that observatory room, and the the window there is like really foggy and cloudy. You can hardly see anything through it. And and Josiah was on the far end of the pool in in a shallow end, and I was like straining, is that him? I I think so. The the next day I took him there, I didn't even bother to watch. You know, I dropped him off, made sure he got in the pool, and then I went for a walk. I I walked to the gas station over here, got an ice cream cone, sat on the bench, and (laughs) ate it. And and at, at the end of the 45 minutes, I came back here and said, how is swimming lessons, buddy? And, you know, the idea is, well, we drop him off and we hope that he's a better swimmer when we're done. But even that, that's not all that we're doing, him, doing for him to teach him how to swim. We're also taking him to the lake and I'm getting in the water with him. I'm swimming with him. We're even doing that for Lydia, even though she's too young for swimming lessons. We get her in her little life jacket and we get her out there and we, we teach her how to kick, teach her to, to be in the water. Because the idea is that Swimming lessons alone isn't enough. That we parents want to take an active role in teaching our kids how to swim. And that's the way it is in discipleship, too. There are lots of people out there that think, well, I go to church, isn't that enough? Doesn't that kind of cover the whole discipleship thing? And the answer is no, it doesn't. Because discipleship really is something that we do 24 hours a day. Following Jesus should consume our lives 24 hours a day. And then as we seek to help other people know Jesus, it's not just simply a matter of showing up and saying, well, I I guess I'm doing my part, aren't I? It takes intentional effort. If we want to help people become more like Christ, there should be some steps that we take to help them walk with Christ. And you see, making disciples isn't just something that professional Christians do. You don't just come here and say, well, I'll, I'll let the pastor disciple me. Or I'll let the, the Sunday school teacher disciple my kids. And for you parents out there, in case you haven't heard this before, you are the number one and two disciplers in your children's lives. There's a, a, 
a report out there, and the statistics bear that out. They, they ask kids who are still walking with the Lord, who are the most influential people in your lives, in your walk with Christ? And answer is number one and two were mom and dad. We need to be taking an active role in being disciples and in making disciples. Now what I want to show you today in this passage from Acts 2 that we're going to look at is I want you to see how the first disciples underwent this task of being disciples and making disciples. And what I want to show you in this passage in Acts 2 is I want to show you that the, the ten lessons that we just went through, so for those of you that have been here over the last few months, you've, you've known that we've been walking through lesson by lesson. Here's some things that you can do in your discipleship. I want to show you how all ten of those are right here in Acts 2. So it's not like we just made these things up or pulled them out of thin air. The idea is there are, there are things that we can do if we want to walk with Jesus, things we can do to grow closer to him, things that we should be passing on to others. But even as I say that, I don't want to confuse you because discipleship ultimately is not a matter of checking ten things off of your list. Really, discipleship is about one thing, following Jesus. So as we talk about discipleship, yes, there are things that we can grow, do to grow in our discipleship, but ultimately it's about one thing. It's about knowing Jesus Christ and walking with him. I guess that's two things, but knowing and walking with him is kind of one thing. You get what I'm saying. So the first of these ten lessons that we're going to look at today is the most important one, knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. I, I want to walk through this passage and show you all ten of them, but I'm going to kind of camp out on that first one for a little bit, and then we're going to fly through numbers two through ten, and then I'm going to give a few brief concluding comments at the end. So here we are. We're in Acts 2, and just a little bit of the context. Jesus had already died and rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples some instructions. He said, wait to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, what happened then, the disciples were gathered together, and the Holy Spirit came in power and filled them. And the result was that they started speaking in tongues, most, in, in other languages. We can see that from the first part of chapter 2. And it caused quite a stir. You can imagine that the onlookers were saying, whoa, what's going on? We hear these people from Galilee speaking in other languages, languages that we know from our home areas. How is that happening? Other people looked at, it, looked at them and said, they're drunk. So here we are. That's the context. Pentecost. I want to read for you now Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 47. Starting in Acts 2:14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show, show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter goes on, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. So that was a quote from David in the Psalms. And then Peter goes on to say, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. Peter says, listen, David wasn't talking about himself here. He was talking about someone who was to come. But he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Peter concluded his sermon with this powerful verse. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says in verse 37, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, when you start with a group of 120 people, and you add 3,000, that can cause some logistical problems. Think about that. What if we had 3,000 extra people here at church this morning? What would we do? Well, let's look at what they did. Verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So again, I want to walk through the ten lessons that we've already walked through, recapping them, spending a little bit more time on number one, and then flying through the next nine. Number one, knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. In verse 21 it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The fact that we can be saved points out that there's something that we need to be saved from. And Peter is clearly telling us in this passage that it's Jesus who saves. He is the one who died on the cross. He is the one who rose again from the grave, victorious over sin and death and the devil. So Jesus is the central figure. Yes, he's ascended to heaven now, but he is still the one whom we are to follow, to center our lives around. We must receive him by faith. 
Now, the, you might not see the word faith in here, but in verse 44, it calls them believers. And believers, the word is those who have faith in Jesus. So the response, as well as what Peter said about repenting and being baptized, the response that we need is faith in Jesus Christ. We need to give our lives to him. And to give our lives to him means that we recognize that we've sinned against him, and we recognize that he's our Lord and our King, and that he guides us into our new life. That's what it means for him to be our Savior and our Lord. Now the fact that Jesus is Lord means that there needs to be a change of allegiance. Because we all came into this world assuming that we could run our own lives, pretending to be our own Lord. But Jesus is the rightful authority in our lives, and we must give our lives to him. And I was talking with somebody, and I said, you know, I, I know I say this all the time, and he said, but keep, keep saying it to us, because we need to be reminded how many of us every day of our lives struggle with this, this issue of who is the Lord in our lives. It's so easy for us to pretend that we can make the decisions that we want to make just because we want to make them. When in reality, God leads us every step of the way and we must follow Him and not our own ways. So discipleship starts with the Master. It starts with the teacher. Remember what the word disciple means? Does, does anybody, can anybody give me the, the quick definition for disciple? Learner. Learner. That's exactly it. A disciple is a learner, and it implies that they learn from someone. And that someone is Jesus. So discipleship really begins and ends with Jesus. And the only way to get discipleship right, you can... You can look at all the, other, the next nine lessons and try to do them on your own power, but if you don't get lesson number one right, you don't get any of it right. Knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord is where we must start. In Hebrews 11.6 it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. You can think about that as we go through the next nine of these lessons, that doing them, any of them without knowing Jesus won't result in pleasing God. So we must come to Jesus. As Peter said in verse 40, we must be saved. The translation there in, in the NIV, it says save yourselves, but literally the translation is be saved, meaning that we must come to somebody else, let him do it. As Peter preached this message, he urged people to receive Jesus. What he said was repent and be baptized. Repentance, meaning fleeing from your sins and, and choosing to follow Christ. And then being baptized, maybe we don't, quite understand why he would put that in there, but baptism is a sign of allegiance. It's a sign that somebody who has come to follow Christ says, I am now with Christ. So just as a side note here, if there are any of you out there who have given your lives to Christ but have not yet been baptized, you should do it quickly. And if you want to talk to me about it, I'd, I'd love to do that. We'd, I'd love to set that up for you. What we're talking about is following Jesus, and the crux of the matter is lordship. Do we follow Jesus Christ as Lord? Because like I said earlier, discipleship isn't a matter of checking ten things off of your list. Ultimately, discipleship is about one thing, about lordship, about who is leading you, who are you following. Let me give you an illustration on that. An apple tree doesn't become an apple tree by producing apples. Right? It, it's already an apple tree. It's shown to be an apple tree as it produces apples. And it's the same thing with us. We don't become disciples by doing the next nine things on this list. 
We become disciples by coming to Jesus Christ. And then our discipleship is shown, is evidenced by the way that we live out our lives, by the way that we do these next nine things, as well as the other things that were taught in the Bible, as well as the other things that the Holy Spirit leads us into. But I hope you're understanding that first and foremost, it starts with Christ. So let's move on then to the next nine lessons. And what these lessons are, if you want to walk with Christ, here are some things that you can do as you submit to Jesus as Lord. Number two is worship. Worship. In verse 42 it says, they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to these four things that list. And then in verse 46 it says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. A couple different ways we can think about worship. One is it's what we do with our mouths, with singing, with glorifying God. That's what we do here on Sunday mornings as we come together. And in that sense, it's, it's anything that comes out of our mouth that glorifies God. But the other way to look at worship is what we do with our bodies. It's 24 hours a day, anything that we do to serve God. So whether that means helping pick up after church, or leading a Bible study, or helping an old lady across the street, anything to give glory to God to be part of our worship. And I want to show you one important word in this passage that shows how the disciples worship. It, in verse 42, is, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then again in verse 46, although it doesn't show up in most English translations, that same word there for devoted, every day they continued to meet together. They were devoted to meeting together. The word devoted is a strong word. I have some Bible software on my computer that helps me translate some words. It has a Bible dictionary on there. I want to read for you what this word devoted means. It says, to continue to do something with intense effort. To continue to do something with intense effort. Think about that on one hand, and on the other hand, somebody who says, oh, discipleship just happens along the way. There's a huge difference between saying, oh, it just happens, and being devoted to something. This Bible dictionary also said that the word devoted might imply continuing to do it even in spite of difficulty. How many of you have difficulties in your lives right now? Even so, be devoted to worshiping God. That's what the disciples, this early church, that's what they were doing. Are you devoted to worshiping God? Okay, number three is prayer. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to, and the fourth one on the list is prayer. Prayer played a really, that's hard to say, prayer played a really significant role in the disciples' lives. As you read the book of Acts, you see how many times they got together for prayer. And this is an area that I think that we can improve on in our church. I hope that each one of us individually has a strong prayer life, but I also think that there are things that we can be doing as a church to grow in this area. And we're actually, uh, the leadership team may not know this, but we're going to be talking about that as a leadership team shortly. And, and hopefully what happens is that we seek God in prayer, both publicly as we meet together and privately in our own life. Because prayer is a great way to say to the Lord, God, I want it your way and not my way. And we can listen to him in prayer. Number four is the word. Three times in this passage, Peter referenced Old Testament scripture. As he was trying to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Lord, he quoted scripture. 
And then in verse 42, when it says that the people were devoted to the apostles' teaching, what do you think they were teaching? They were teaching what Jesus said, and it was those same apostles who wrote a bunch of the books of our Bible. And I'm sure they used scripture as they were teaching them, as they gathered together as well. We are to be, to be people who are devoted to hearing God's word, to hearing him guide us as we seek him in his word. Why? Again, because if we're really serious about knowing Jesus as Lord, we would open up our Bibles and say, okay, God, teach me, show me. But it's interesting to think, even in that, you can open up your Bible and read it and not meet with God. It's not just simply a matter of saying, okay, I'm going to check this one off the list. It's a matter of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as we read our Bibles, as we listen to a sermon. Number five, fellowship with God and with others. Again, in verse 42, fellowship with each other is one of the things that these followers were devoted to. And in verse 46, it says that they continued, they were devoted to meeting together. Fellowship has a great way of encouraging us to keep going. I, one of the things I love about fellowship is that I am constantly reminded that I am not the only one who cares about walking with God. That's one of the reasons that we are to continue to, get to, to get, continue to meet together, to encourage each other to keep going in our walk with the Lord. But I want to point out something else about fellowship here. Four times in this passage between verses 25 and 34, we see the powerful impact of fellowship between Jesus and the Father. Where does fellowship come from? Why does God ask that we get together in fellowship? It goes all the way back to the Trinity, to eternity past. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, since eternity past, have been meeting together in perfect fellowship. And then when it says in Genesis 1 that we were created in the image of God, part of that image in us is the fact that we were created to have relationships with each other and relationships with God. So when we see that longing of Jesus to be with his Father we're also to understand that that longing is in each of us, that longing for fellowship with other believers and that longing for fellowship with God is something that we're created with. And we can honor our Father by living out that sort of fellowship with each other and with God. In heaven, we'll have those perfect relationships with God and with each other, but on earth, we're to work to strengthen those relationships. Number six is evangelism evangelism. What was Peter doing in Acts 2? He was telling other people how they could come to know Jesus. Why? Well, he mentioned in verse 20 that the, the day of the Lord is coming. The truth is that Jesus Christ is coming again. And the truth is that we will all be judged according to whether we have received or rejected Jesus Christ. And you know, that's, those are the only two options. There's no gray area in between. It's either you received him or you rejected him. People need to know this. People need to know it's not just simply a matter of, oh, did I do enough good things? It's a matter of knowing Jesus Christ, and we must tell them. It's amazing how many people out there don't know the answer to that. How many people assume that that's not what will be graded on? There's a final test coming, and too many people are studying the wrong material for it. We need to tell them. There's another powerful force of evangelism in this passage, though. In verse 47, it says that one of the results 
of these followers of Jesus as they got together, as they worshipped God, as they enjoyed each other's fellowship, they shone as lights, and it says that people were added to their number daily. Isn't that awesome? I would love to see that. That as we go about our lives, as we love each other and worship God, other people see the magnificence of God and they come to know Him as their Lord, as Lord and Savior as well. Number seven is service. Verses 44 to 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Some people read these verses and get really uncomfortable. Some people read these verses and say, oh, are we supposed to be communists? Well, the answer is no. I don't think that there's any compulsion here. And when I read these passages now, I don't feel uncomfortable anymore. I used to have that discomfort of, oh, is, you know, am I supposed to give everything away and give to the poor? But instead of looking at it that way now, I look at this as the willing hearts of people who wanted to worship God and meet the needs of others. So as they heard about somebody who had a need and they said, hey, I, I'm in a position. God has blessed me. I should maybe meet that need. <coughs> it was one of the ways that they loved each other they served each other by using their material possessions. As we walk with God, one of his promises for us is that he will watch out for us. Remember, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. As we live in the blessing of God, may we extend that blessing to others by meeting their needs. Number eight. Humility and repentance. In verse 37, the, the people, after hearing Peter's sermon, said, it, it says of them, they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? That word cut to the heart means they were convicted of their sin. And they asked Peter, said, well, okay, Peter, um, I guess you're right. That Jesus that we crucified, he is Lord in Christ. What do we do? And his response, repent. Repentance is what we do with our sins. If we have offended God, we need to realize what we've done and we need to ask Him to forgive us. So whether we're talking about that very first moment of coming to Jesus in initial repentance, receiving Him as Lord and Savior, or whether we're talking about our ongoing need to confess our sins to God, we must not let sin fester in our lives. We must take it to God and let Him take care of it. Number nine, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You must not read Acts 2 and miss the Holy Spirit. Jesus went to heaven. And again, the disciples are probably like, hey, wait a second, Jesus. Uh, a lot of questions still. Would you uh, mind sticking around with us for a while? And what did Jesus say in, in the Gospel of John? He said, it's better for you that I go. Because unless I go, I can't send the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 2, what we see is the Holy Spirit coming. The Holy Spirit filled the apostles. It was prophesied that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people. Jesus received the Holy Spirit. Jesus now pours out the Holy Spirit. And Peter said that those who received Jesus would also receive the Holy Spirit. Um, I've, I've said this before a few times here at church, but too many evangelicals have almost no theology of the Holy Spirit and have almost no practice of what it means to follow the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, or at least they couldn't explain to you what their practice is. But look how important the Holy Spirit is, not just here in this passage, but in the rest of the Bible. 
We have been given the Holy Spirit so that we can be disciples and make disciples. We can't do those things in our own strength. There is no way that we could live up to those tasks of being disciples and making disciples without the Holy Spirit. So may the Holy Spirit have His way in us. May He fill us. May we seek Him. And may our lives reveal the marks of His presence in us. Number ten is the church. As these new believers came to Christ, they joined with the others who were following Christ. Now this passage doesn't use the word church here, but that's clear that's what it's talking about. In verse 46, again it says they were devoted to meeting together. They learned from each other. They worshipped together. They sat underneath the authority and the teaching of the apostles. They met together at set times. It looks like they had formal times of worship. And they also met together informally, house to house, enjoying the fellowship. They had great joy together as well as the fear of the Lord together. And as you read the rest of the New Testament, you see the importance of the church in our discipleship. So that's the summary. It's discipleship in uh, 12 sermons. Now, it's kind of weird, and I, I noticed this even from before I began this series. How do you end a series like this? Because the idea is, we're not done with discipleship. That was never the goal of this series, to start and finish discipleship in 12 weeks. The goal, actually, as we talked about in our leadership team, was to, to create a new culture here at Cornerstone. A culture where we are intentional about being disciples and about making disciples. And as I talk with other pastors, they say, you know, it's kind of like turning a huge ship around. It's not one of these uh, zero-radius lawnmowers that you just kind of turn right around. It, it takes a long time for this being disciples and making disciples to take root in a congregation. It'll take a long time for us to learn how to live this out, how to pass it on to others. And it's a difficult thing to do. It's, it's not easy to have this happen in a church. It's something that we all need to be committed to. So I want you all to know that as I'm summarizing this lesson on discipleship, we're not done with it. Not by any means. We will keep going with being disciples and making disciples. Like our mission statement says, we are to have a passion to know Christ and we are commissioned to make him known and we will keep doing that. In the first sermon in this series, I made a claim that discipleship is not a program of the church. It is the program of the church. Discipleship isn't one of 17 ministries that we have here at Cornerstone. Discipleship is our ministry. So I want you to know that everything we do at Cornerstone Church is run through this grid. Will it help us be disciples? Will it help us make disciples? Even as we go on to another sermon series next, the next sermon series I'm going to do is we're going to walk through the book of 1 John in the New Testament. Why are we doing that? Because we believe that God's Word has an important role in our lives and we want to study it. So I, I want to ask the question here, as we just looked at these ten areas of discipleship, maybe as you're looking through them in your bulletin or as you remember them from this sermon or past sermons, think about maybe one or two of those areas where you're a little bit weak. And, it, and you ask yourself the question, what should I do? If I'm weak in one of those areas, what should I do? Well, one of the answers 
you might come up with would be to say, well, I should try harder. I should try to do a better job in that. Let's take, for example, the area of the word. Let's say that you've noticed in your life that you just haven't been spending the time or connecting with God the way that you should in the word. What should you do? Well, the first answer that might pop into your head would say, well, I need to have a plan where I spend X number of minutes in the Bible each day. And you know what? I'm gonna, you, this might surprise you. That's not the answer I want you to give right now. It might be part of the answer, but what I want you to do, if you're noticing that you're weak in an area, like the words, for example, I want you to ask the question, what does that say about my discipleship? What does that say about how I am submitting or not submitting to the Lord? Because again, you could make your goal and actually complete your goal and not meet with Jesus as you do it. But if there's something in your heart that is preventing you from meeting with God, if there is some obstacle that's getting in your way, and again, that might be spiritual warfare. Have you ever thought about that, that it might be spiritual warfare that's keeping you from meeting with God and opening your Bible? If there's something that's getting in your way, I want you to talk with your Lord about it and ask Him to reveal what's going on in your heart. And as you talk with Him then, you come up with a plan. And maybe part of your plan is then, yes, I want to be committed to reading my Bible for X number of minutes per day. But even as I do that, I want to make sure that I'm connecting with the Lord. So whatever area it is, I want you to talk with your Lord about where your heart is at. Because that's what discipleship is about. Again, ultimately, discipleship is not the ten things that we do to follow Jesus. Discipleship is simply a matter of following Jesus. And then as we follow Jesus, we help others follow Jesus. You can't make disciples unless you are a disciple. Now I want to close with this, and I'm almost, almost done here. Two questions and a comment. What are you doing to grow in your faith? That's my first question. What are you doing to grow in your faith? Learning to swim takes effort. If you want to learn to swim, you do things like you sign up for swimming lessons and you go with your parents to a lake and you you learn how to swim. What are you doing to grow in your faith? What sort of effort are you making? What are you devoted to in your walk with Christ? We are to follow Jesus Christ and it doesn't just simply happen. It's something that we should be committed to. So what can you do right now? Even Maybe if you think through those ten things, or maybe God's laying something else on your heart, or maybe you just need to talk to Jesus about lordship. But what is it that you can do right now to commit to growing in your faith? Second question, who are you pouring your life into? Who are you pouring your life into? As we walk with Jesus, we should be helping other people walk with Jesus. We should be putting our arm around somebody and saying, I would like to help you grow in your faith. And again, this doesn't just happen along the way. And it doesn't just automatically happen. Let's say if you're one of the Sunday school teachers here. That's a great environment for discipling others, but it doesn't just happen as you, you know, open up your book and go through your lesson. It doesn't just automatically happen. It happens as you pour your lives into people. It, ha- it happens as you, your heart engages with that material and as you pour your life out. Who is it that you are pouring your life into? Is God giving you an opportunity 
to help somebody be a closer follower of Jesus Christ? If so, I highly suggest that you listen to your Lord and take the steps that he's asking you to take. And then my concluding comment is this. None of this works without submitting to God. Lordship is essential. We must not do any of this in our own power. We seek God daily, asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit and letting Him lead us into what's right. But it's about where our hearts are at. There are two ways that we can go. We can follow our own ways or we can submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and let Him guide us in our life. How are you doing at submitting to Jesus Christ? That will be the answer to the discipleship questions. Even as I think about how difficult it can be at a church to figure out how do we do this? How do we make disciples? It's a huge question. But the answer on an individual basis is actually pretty easy and it has everything to do with are you submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? God, again, we are so grateful that you lead us. That we are not left as orphans. We're not just left to our own devices. But that you teach us you guide us. You give us the Holy Spirit that we may follow you. And I pray that our hearts would be submissive to you. That every single one of us in here would know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And that we would live every day submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. Following you. Honoring you. Glorifying you. May our lives be worship. May we be disciples. And as we do that, Lord, strengthen us to make disciples. Help us to see those opportunities and make the most of every one of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.